0: How we doing there, psychology fans? I'm used to saying history fans, but we're changing gears here a little bit. So this is going to be the first uh, audio podcast of my psychology courses. So this is all just kind of meant to help out, give you guys a little refresher, review, however you want to look at it um, for my classes. Um, so this is just kind of an introduction to psychology. Obviously, I'm not going to go crazy in depth because I just don't have time, it's a semester-long course, at least if you're enrolled in my course. So anyhow, um, yeah, so what I'm going to be doing as I go through these is going through the bare-bones information stuff. Obviously, we do a lot more conversations in class and everything, but I am going to try and keep in a lot of the examples, or at least a couple examples for each one, because the examples help you to understand it a little bit better. I mean, that's just what examples do in general. Um, you can get away from that a little bit in, in history because it's, you know, so much facts and stuff, but there's a lot of interpretation here, and it's nice if we can have something we can kind of, um, you know, relate it to in our own lives, um, so anyhow, I'll, I'll do do my best on this, so anyhow, this first unit is Infancy and Childhood, so oh, let's get Right into it. So, we're going to start off with uh, kind of, you know, fetal newborn development. So, the idea of developmental psychology. So, there's kind of our starting point. Developmental psychology is the study of how humans mature and why they develop as they do. So, we're going to be looking at this from a whole different um, range of perspectives and so forth. But I do want to start off with language. So, just kind of like how kids are starting to talk and and learn, do what they do kind of thing. So um, during the first year of a child's development, you're going to hear a lot of different sounds from these kids, so kind of cooing sounds and stuff. Not really anything intelligible uh, if you've ever had to have a conversation with a, a newborn. It's one-sided. So, anyhow, um, as they progress, children really start to imitate family members, those the ones that are around the most. And generally, they get approval uh, from these family members as they make these sounds. So, it's like if they make a sound that sounds like da-da, you better believe I'm going to be cheering because that kid's saying dad is his first word. And that's me. So, um Anyhow. So um, as they go on, they start uh, like second year. They start to learn that sounds um, are are symbols of different things. So if I say cookie, that means that cookie over there, and then they they get that you know that's, that's a, that word. It's a symbol. It means cookie. Cookie kind of thing. So. Um, Later on, um, at least they, they start understanding these, they are all connected. And then they start getting into primitive forms of words, and they, they might not be the, the best. Like, you know, instead of ball, it's ba. Yeah, doesn't sound very good to us, but for a kid, that's monumental. So the first real words, um, you know, we start coming up with uh, usually refer to things that they can see or touch. And, you know, by the time a kid is about two, they generally have a pretty decent vocabulary, somewhere around 500 to 1,500 words. Um, And, you know, as they move forward, they get this thing called telegraphic speech. Uh, They leave out a lot of words, uh, use the wrong verb tense, but they can still get their message across to whoever they're they're speaking to, like, "'Where apple?' "'Daddy fall.' Okay, not really complete sentences there by any means, but hey, we know what they're talking about. So, anyhow, by the end of those two years, they they know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words kind of thing, which is, is kind of cool. So, all right, just to kind of give you a little like recap here of everything. So, one year we have babbling begins and increases. By the year's end, they can master certain sounds of their own language, usually, you know, first words of baba, mama, dada, kind of thing, very basic stuff. All right, we get into two years. Um, They start to have dozens of words, um, hundreds of words, even, and, you know, maybe even the low thousand kind of thing. Um, They're able to ask some simple questions, uh, you know. They were able to say, you know, all gone ball, more ball, Jenny go, no ball, very simple stuff, kind of what we just went over. All right, so now kind of leaving this a little bit, because that part's the recap Here's some little addition here, by three years, which we didn't go over too much here, a child acquires more grammatical knowledge, says appropriate sentences, uses simple declaratives, produces correct negative sentences, average size vocabulary, over 5,000. Sorry, just, you know, based on what we had for one and two years, this just sounds so upper society, so I like to add in my voice. But he can say, or she can say, such things as, I eating, I'm eating, don't go. Yeah, still pretty basic, okay. Alright, so we get into four years. Child uses more grammatical rules and future tenses. Ask questions in adult form. Average vocabulary, 9,000, roughly. So, examples, will Jenny go? I can't go. Why is Jenny crying? And five years, and we'll move on to some other stuff after this, but child uses more complex clauses, joins two or more ideas in one sentence, has problems with noun and verb agreement, though. So, for instance, I see what you did. So, all right, um... So let's move on to some cognitive development. So what's going on in that brain and understanding that world around them? So schemas. Now keep this one in the back of your brain here. (laughs) We're talking about cognitive development and I said back of your brain. But anyhow, keep the idea of schemas going because we're going to be referring back to different types of schemas and just schemas in general uh, throughout all of these different ones. But uh, a schema is a mental representation of the world. And each of us construct our own kind of intellectual schemas, and it, it just—it's what we do to try to understand uh, the world around us. We try to understand new objects, um, and we try to uh, apply this kind of concept to an object that we just. We just encountered for the first time. We apply it to previously existing schemas. Or we have to change one of our schemas to fit this new object. So there's two basic um, kind of ways of doing this, of you know using existing or developing new schemas. We have assimilation and accommodation. So assimilation, we try to fit the new object into the scheme we already have. So I see this round object. It's like, oh, that's a ball. So it's like, oh, I have a previous schema for ball, balls bounce and stuff. Boom, we're good to go. Go. Accommodation. This is the reverse of this process. We change the schema we have to fit the characteristics of this new object. So maybe someone gives me a football and they say, football. Okay, ball. Now I'm saying the American football, which, you know, pigskin kind of cowhide kind of, you know. Weirdly shaped, not circular ball. Okay, whoa, not circular? you kidding me? My previous schema said balls are round and the bounce. This thing does bounce, and it's a ball, but it bounces funny, and it looks funny. So I'm going to have to change my definition of what this all is kind of thing. So uh, I'll give you guys another little example, Um, hopefully... This makes sense too, um, but think about Legos. Uh, Legos are awesome. You play with Legos and stuff, but you get some other Legos like maybe Duplos. Okay, those are big Legos, um, and but they're they're still they still fit the schema kind of thing. But then you get like a Lego Technic set, and they've got all these weird pieces and stuff that don't fit the exact mold. So that's some accommodation because I am changing my whole definition of Legos. The other ones are like oh, those are just bigger Legos. It's, you know that's assimilation. So. Anyhow, hopefully that kind of makes sense to you guys. And I know as I say makes sense to you guys and I wave my hands in the air, this is an audio one, and you can't see me making hand gestures that might convey my feelings on all of this. But anyhow, all right, moving on. We have representational Thought. So this is, you know, like 18 months to 24 months. So like basically... Almost two years old, two years old kind of thing. Basically, children can picture or represent things in their mind. So you tell them to picture an elephant, they can picture an elephant. I tell you to picture an elephant, you probably pictured an elephant. Good for you. All right, so, anyhow, that's the idea of this representational thought that you can see all these things. And, and. kind of building off of that but that children can't understand is the principles of conservation this is kind of picturing things but not quite understanding things so this principle or rule is that a given quantity does not change even when its appearance changes in some way when a children's under five they really can't understand that even though it's a different the appearance has changed it's still the same object so you give me a piece of paper and I crumple that piece of paper. It's like, oh my gosh, where'd that piece of paper go? Now there is a paper ball in its place. No, it's the same piece of paper, but the kid just doesn't quite understand that it's still there. It just it changed in form a little bit, and and also these these kids during this time, um, you know, maybe some of the reasons they can't understand some of this stuff, and actually a lot of the reasons they can't understand. There's a lot of this egocentric thinking going on. And that's basically seeing and thinking of the world from your own standpoint, henceforth ego. So it's, they, they have a trouble understanding that the world doesn't revolve around them. Um, it supposedly lessens with age, but if you've met some people, maybe it doesn't. Um, but when they get older, they can, um, you, know, you know, by age seven, roughly, they can understand That, you know, that piece of paper that's wadded up and stuff, they can see things from an outside perspective. Uh, My favorite one to always kind of think about um, is, like, when you're little and you're trying to hide from your parents or something like that, and you, like, just because your eyes are hidden... You think that your whole body is hidden, and it's like, oh, they're not going to see me. It's like, because you just see it for everything from your perspective. It's like, oh, well, I can't see them, so they can't see me. It's like, never mind. that. It's like, you just have something over your face. Your whole body is just sticking out, kind of thing. So, all right, guys. Let's, uh, let's talk about Piaget and his stages of cognitive development. So... Piaget is one of those like kind of big forefathers of psychology stuff. Now that doesn't mean whenever I say these these big guys of uh, forefathers and so forth that their information holds up. Look at this as more of a historical thing and you know there is, you know, it doesn't mean they don't have some good things and they didn't recognize some good things here but not everything is 100% as they say. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we'll talk about Freud. So, anyhow, Piaget, so he has four different stages here, at least, that he uh, identified. The sensoramomotor, sensoramotor, I'm terrible at my pronunciation, but he said the approximate age is birth to two years of age. And during this time, uh, behavior consists of simple motor responses, hence for that sensor motor. Um, So, motor responses to sensory stimuli, so... Um, they, they don't really understand object permanence that like, you know, when object is gone from sight, it is, you know, gone, gone kind of thing. It's like, no, it's like that it doesn't change or anything. It's still there. I just, maybe I just can't see it kind of thing. So this time, they just are interacting with the world around them through their senses and that's all they really understand. So it's like, if I can touch it, it's there. If I can't, it's gone. All right. So then we move into the next stage, the two to seven year stage, and he calls this the pre-operational stage. So, pre-operational, they lack operations. Um, So, basically, they exhibit this egocentric thinking. Um, They don't understand the concepts of conservation, which we just talked about a little bit. They use symbols, such as words or mental images, to solve simple problems or to talk about things um, that are not present. So, we're, we're starting to understand that, you know, things aren't here, but they're still real kind of thing. All right, and that moves us into, so that was pre-operational. Now we have concrete operations. All right, so you're kind of seeing a little pre-concrete, and then we'll get into formal that a little bit here. But, anyhow, concrete operations, ages 7 to 11. Um, Kids basically begin to understand the concepts of conservation. Um, They still have trouble um, with abstract ideas, but sometimes us older people do too. Classification abilities improve, understanding that, you know, different things have, you know, different kind of um, schemas with them. It's like, oh, that's a vehicle kind of thing, whether it's a truck or a car kind of thing. Um, and just, you know, they basically, they, they master the concept of conservation at this point, so that kind of, you know, un- understanding where everything is. All right, and then our last one, so that was concrete operations. Now we're on to formal operations. This is 11 years and onward. So uh, basically understanding abstract ideas, although some of us still don't do that, Um, hypothetical situations, some of us still don't got that, and capable of logical and deductive reasoning. Once again, some of us still working on that. Now, I'm going to touch on one more thing. This is, all right, so we're done with Piaget there, so I'm I'm sure we'll be talking about him again. Um, But moving on here, we're going to talk about imprinting just for a moment um, I think it's a good one to bring up when you're looking at just how brains develop But this one is not with humans, really. Uh, this is mostly with animals. And so the idea of imprinting is the inherent tendencies of some newborn animals to follow the first thing that is moving around them. And they usually feel this is strongest between 13 and 16 hours after birth. Um, so, yeah, this isn't a big one for humans. That being said, uh, just a little personal anecdote for you. Um, you know, we've gone to some birthing classes, uh, for my wife and I for, for having our little one, and they're like, you know, they really encourage a skin to skin contact like immediately after birth almost. And they said there's a lot of benefits from that, so I don't know if it's necessarily imprinting, but eh, you know, maybe we have some inherent tendencies that kind of help out with all that. stuff. So. but you know, speaking of infants, let's talk about human infants, no longer those animal infants we just mentioned with imprinting, but infants begin to form an attachment to their mothers at about six months, or any surrogate mother for that matter. So this is when they were able to distinguish one person from another um, and they, that's that whole object permanency that we mentioned earlier, that it's like oh, it's like, you're my human, like, I got you, like, I can recognize you and you're, you're a constant kind of thing. Alright, then we get six months to three years of age. That one's a pretty big gap here. Um, A child is able to remember and imagine their parents and caregivers and maintain this relationship even if it's in imagination land because the parent is not not there kind of thing. It's like, oh, we still have these people in our lives even though they're not physically present right now. Now, we do start to run into some other things with human infants, and some people go through some of these things more than others. Some of them don't go through some of these things at all. So, just take these for what it's worth. These are things that human infants go through. Stranger anxiety. So, at about one year, if the mother is near and the child meets a stranger, they may display anxiety. So, if you've ever held a child and you know, some, or someone's holding a child, and they're like, hey, why don't you hold this little kiddo for a second? You, like, pick up the kid, and the kid, like, looks at you and gets this tear in their eyes. They turn back to their parent, and then they just start crying. Yeah. That could be some stranger anxiety. And that also kind of builds into this next one, separation anxiety. occurs whenever the child is suddenly separated from the mother. So, okay, well, I feel bad that I'm comparing children to puppies and stuff, but you see this sometime in puppies where, you know, a, a small dog is just like can't be separated from its owner so same thing but maybe less fur I don't know all right um now what we're all kind of aiming for with little children is a securely attached child or secure attachment um these kids they are just you know they they they, they get to you know they get their parents and stuff they know that they're they're still protected mom's coming back dad's coming back whatever kind of thing so these kids more sociable, well-adjusted, happier, more cooperative with uh, peers, adults, and so forth. They balance the need to explore and to be close kind of thing. Um, They will protest a bit when mom does leave, but they welcome her back with no anger, like, oh, I'm not mad that you left me, kind of thing. And they, they generally say that mothers who are more sensitive and responsive tend to have securely attached children. Now we get into the opposite of that, insecure attachment. So basically take that and flip it around all backwards kind of things. So these kids are not as sociable, they're not as well-adjusted, they're you know, not exactly happy, they don't cooperate with their peers and adults, all that good stuff. And if you see a kid that is like textbook opposite of this, they say that this is a predictor of disorders in adolescence. You know, a predictor doesn't mean that it always happens. All right, so we're getting into all these attachment ones because I've got a, three more for you here right away. Avoidant attachment. A child may be somewhat distressed, at mother departing, leaving and stuff, and plays well with others. But then they kind of are spiteful because they avoid and ignore mom when she returns. So that they're avoiding mom, avoiding attachment. I don't know, that's how I remember it. All right, a resistant attachment. Uh, child is not upset when mom leaves, but rejects her and is angry when mom returns. So, you know, it's not like, you know, it's like, oh... Not really distressed, like oh mom leaves and stuff, but it's like still angry at mom kind of thing. So the other one, avoidant, is like oh I'm still distressed, mom's leaving, so I'm, I'm gonna show her that I'm angry. This kid's like oh I'm not really upset, but I'm still mad at you kind of thing. And then we have disorganized attachment. We see a little bit of all of these. So I guess it's just a way to you know just weird and consistent contradictory behavior kind of thing. So and that kind of brings us into parenting styles. And I'm gonna pick up with parenting styles here in part two because I, I generally like to keep these little audio ones at you know maybe about 20 minutes. And I'm going a little slower here on the first one just because I know that uh, you know if you're you're getting into the podcast and stuff, you haven't you know had any of mine before or interacted with my podcast before. Um, I do try to keep a, a faster pace generally. Uh, just so we can get through a lot of material. This is supposed to be bare bone stuff. I don't want to reteach everything. It's supposed to be just kind of a good overview, help you to review for stuff, keep things in the back of your mind, what have you. So, um, and remember, you know, depending on how you're accessing this, a lot of audio um, apps that you would use to listen to stuff like this, you do have the ability to hit slow or speed up or just listen to it at normal time. So, anyhow, we'll come back with part two here in just a moment with Parenting Styles. Stay tuned.